Let's do it. Ah, all right, here we go. Hey, all, we're back. Welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And thanks, as always, for listening. Today, in honor of this awful holiday, we're doing an anti-Valentine's Day episode, lamenting the what we consider the dreary unsexiness of most uh, of most films of our time. And we're wondering if it's part of a much larger phenomena, the depletion, we could call it, of erotic energy in our collective existence that's running alongside the depletion of other planetary resources. And that's the topic of the book we're going to be discussing. It's called Peak Libido, Sex, Ecology, and the Collapse of Desire by our very special guest, Dominic Petman, who's a university professor of media and new humanities at the New School for Social Research, the author of many scholarly works on, quote, and this is right off your page, Dominic, cheating, Behavior and phenomena that escape the overcoding of everyday life in the age of hypercapitalism. Yeah, and we, we should say we've all met on the internet, um, but have never spoken in real life. Um, th- among the many reasons we admire uh, Dominic is that he has excellent taste in memes. Um, truly, <laughs> if you ever have the honor of, of being his Facebook friend or stumbling across the page in which he participates, um, you've already won. So we're honored. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, you. Dominic. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I try to raise shitposting to an art form. <laughs> You've succeeded. Yes. (laughs) And I've already, my first sentence, I've already cursed. So apologies. Oh, that that we're we're allowed to do, we feel. Yeah. Give ourselves a pass. Fit right in. (laughs) Well, I did have to sort of um, search my conscience if I could be on a podcast that is openly so pro pleasure and, uh, (laughs) you know, pro pro beauty, even. I mean, so yeah. There's so many shocking things. I believe you use the term bliss bombs in your book. So I think, <laughs> I think that we're all on the same page. Okay. <laughs> no. Literally. Good. Yes. yes. <laughs> so so let, we're going to just plunge into the most obvious issue question first, which is the title, Peak Libido, which I'll just quickly say it's de- derived from a, a geological term, peak oil, mm. which refers to the, the, the time, the year when the maximum rate of extraction of petroleum is reached, after which it's expected to enter terminal decline. So could you tell us a little bit more about applying this geological term to the, the, the fraught concept of libido? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I just noticed yesterday that Royal Dutch Shell said that 2019 was officially their peak for oil ex- production. So, oh, my God. Um, yeah, interesting. So I, I more or less stole this idea from a brilliant um, French philosopher who's sadly no longer with us, Bernard Stiegler brilliant philosopher of technology and a fascinating guy. He didn't use the term peak libido, but he was more or less um, discussing libido as a kind of human resource, uh, not in the corporate sense, but in the, in the source that, in the sense that makes us more human. And the fact, I mean, he has a very specific kind of definition for libido, um, which is, all bound up with being able to be compassionate and take care of objects. So it's not necessarily just sex drive. Mm-hmm. Um, his argument was that there's always going to be drive, like we're always going to want to kind of, you know, have physical pleasure or get laid or whatever. Um, but a kind of libidinal relationship to the world, which is more sensuous, uh, kind of more attuned, um, more directed towards the other 
that capacity uh, for him is running out, mm-hmm. um, largely because of you know the way the media is designed to frack everything out of us. Yeah. Um, so I just thought it was such an intriguing idea, and and I wanted to sort of make it more accessible because his language is rather um, complex. Mm-hmm and esoteric. So I wanted to sort of take that idea and sort of see it in popular culture and if it's how much it's true. But even in terms of just sex itself, there's uh, all sorts of chatter in the, in the journalism world about, you know, this, this new generation is having sex later and less mm-hmm. than supposedly the ones before. Fertility rates are dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of narratives about you know, singlehood and loneliness and, um, yeah, there's, so, so there's plenty of evidence that, um, we're living through a libidinal crisis as much as, um, all the other crises that we find ourselves surrounded by. And yeah, I, I, I wanted to take an ecological view of the libido. Like the first sentence is, you know, what is the carbon footprint of your libido? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of just designed to think about, to, to prompt thinking about how desires impact the world and, and vice versa and um, sort of get beyond Freud's ver- version of libidinal economy. Think about it more in terms of the environment in general. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that makes a bit of sense. Oh, it does. And you, and you, and you start off with a, you know, an early on a really memorably disgusting example of, of <laughs> a consequence of what you call tech lust, you know, all of our, you know, d- desire for all the latest gadgets is this horrible, sludgy, toxic mm. lake in, in China that is the result of the toxic waste. And so we get a very vivid image already of, of yeah, this footprint, shall we say. Exactly. And, and the, 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 sorry, the, um, the thing that really crystallized it for me was the story about the 50 shades of gray, how, you know, this, this, this book that was so huge, apparently they used a a non-biodegradable glue against industry standards. And so it's sort of technically, literally toxic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I, once I read that story, I I realized I would have to unpack this a lot more. And you, you've got this wonderful way of expanding the concept of a li- libidinal economy to libidinal ecology. And for you, you kind of, I think you use Bataille to show that it's really this um, ecology of libido is about spending um, mm. in, instead of acquiring. So it's, you know, once we are no longer compelled to expend energy in the direction of libidinal investments, which kind of includes for humans an investment in the future, um, mm. would you say, um, then then we're in real trouble. It's um, and, and for us, I guess, uh, you extend libidinal ecology to the whole not just the whole planet, but it kind of seems like uh, through Bataille, like the whole universe, like we're, you know, we're all kind of part of a giant undulating rhythm. Um, am I getting this right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bataille sees no difference between economy and ecology, which is one of the reasons I like him. Um, it's And he emphasizes waste and squandering and exuberance. There's a great book called um, Natural Exuberance, I think, how nature is not worried about you know, savings, it's savings account, as it were. So yeah, the libido doesn't do well under a regime of austerity. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, you reminded me just then of uh, a Neil Young, a late Neil Young song I like called Love to Burn. Nice. And he's like, he's like, you've got love to burn. So, you know, it's just you do it, you know, um, yeah. don't be frugal with this, <laughs> with this thing. <laughs> And, and the touchstone for Bataille, which was so beautifully sort of, you know, illustrated and built on in your book is, is the sun, which is mm. a source of wealth that gives and gives and gives and receives nothing in return. And, you know, mm. it's kind of a reminder that human life is built on this like generous expenditure with no thought of savings, is right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you're, you're also making me think of a talk I went to yesterday where the speaker was a kind of... Um, what would you call it, like a spec speculative science fiction guy. And he was trying to say, argue that we're wasting so much of the sun's energy and we really need to kind of build some kind of platform around it so we can capture all this energy for value. And I was shuddering in my boots because I'm like, no, no, we need to let it just pour forth <laughs> and, and, and be generous. So yeah, even at the cosmic level, I mean, I'm all for neg entropy and going against the heat death of the universe, so we can, you know, have more, more fun in the future, as you say it, I mean, but um, this kind of calculating transactional, you know, measurable models of it is, is a bit alarming. So, I, yeah. Since since technology in some ways, I don't want to be reductive, but, you know, uh, so um, the way that technology is um, kind of demanding certain rhythms and distractions of us seems to be the heart of the the thing we need to struggle against among other things in the book and cinema is a is a technology um so how do you think what is the role of cinema in this in this economy or ecology of libido is cinema necessarily one of those technologies of distraction that will inevitably leech libido from us as a species or does it have more possibilities yeah, I mean, we could talk forever, couldn't we? This yes. is so so much here, <laughs> so much here. I mean, casual my, question. <laughs> <laughs> a few caveats to start is one: I'm not, um, I'm not a film person in the sense that you two are, so I'm self-conscious about saying anything vaguely, um, sounding like an expert here. I'm really, I'm a film fan um, more than anything, and so, but I am a media studies guy in general. And so there's always that distinction between form and content. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's so many good anthropologies of film, right, or around the, the space of the cinema itself, the theater, the being in the dark, how, what kind of a libidinal liminal space that was, because we've been sort of banned from that now. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, even just consuming film at home through small devices, Netflix streaming, that changes the whole kind of relationship with the social. And so, you know, you're really trapped in your libidinal bubble mm -hmm. by yourself. Um, so that's, that's even before we get to the type of things that you're, you're watching. Yes. Um, right. But it, and that, and that really feeds into like some of the early, early worries about cinema when it was all bound up in the theatrical space however crude and the among the first things that happened our reformers are terrified of what's going on in the dark strangers <laughs> right. sitting next to each other <laughs> and you immediately start getting calls for censorship and monitoring and what about the children and what about teenagers mm -hmm. and that starts almost immediately moral panics right at the beginning yeah 
Yeah. What, what was that advice for women on trains when they go through tunnels to put pins in their mouths in case someone <laughs> tried to kiss you? Oh, wow. I oh, my gosh. I did not say But of course, that's because of the, oh, my God, what is the famous film? It's not just the kiss. It's the one where he ends up kissing the woman and a, a black woman turns around and it's unexpected. What's that film? You've got me. It's a very... Oh, it's no, a really famous, it. yeah, it's a really famous like early work of cinema and a, a white huh. man, it's very scandalous. A white man thinks he's kissing a white woman in a tunnel and um, wow. they go through the tunnel and when, when the, you know, when the light comes back mm. and they emerge into the sun, um, he's holding a black woman. Uh, and uh-huh. it's a very like scandalous joke. Cooler than mine. I mean, God. God. <laughs> well, never mind. We'll, we'll edit this out. Never I mind. Just watch the train coming into the station over and over. No, I'm okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's not, I mean, for me, it's not that, you know, there's this organic thing called the libido and love, and, mm-hmm. and it, 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 technology kind of impinges on it. I've, I've, you know, spent a lot of my career trying to point out how. Um, you know, love is all, always already codified or, you know, mediated, even in that story, the Plato, famous Plato story of the two halves rushing together again. Mm-hmm. Um, they depend on, you know, technology to fuse back together again. So even at the, at the start, the primal scene of Western desire, <laughs> um, there's technology. So, yeah, it's more about the way it modulates us and in whose interests and, you know, the political economy of, of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and film is highly <laughs> ambivalent, I suppose, or ambiguous because it's, it, it's one of those spaces and places where we have this apprenticeship in desire. We learn it's, mm-hmm. it's grammar and gestures, you know, it's a, love is a public thing. It has to be legible in order for us to, communicated um as opposed to just stewing it and so yeah that's where we learn the grammar the gestures the um, the codes so um but they're obviously rather circumscribed by the cultural you know the cultural norms of the time um you know you're learning we're all familiar with the male gaze with the hetero gaze of the camera um my colleague Mackenzie Wark has started um, giving talks on the cis gaze. So, yeah, these are ways to limit, um, but also allow types of desire. And obviously, um, different genders have different complicated, (laughs) ambivalent relationships to Mm -hmm. the dominant male gaze because they still, people still learn to desire surreptitiously or against Mm -hmm. the grain or diagonally or Mm -hmm. um, simultaneously. Right. So, yeah, I think that's why, and obviously film shows us things, takes us into intimate spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big part of it too, is it's a voyeurism machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that in itself gives a libidinal thrill, no matter even what you're looking at, it doesn't have to be kind of sexy content, but the fact that you can peek into other people's lives peek into their pores how many ecstatic essays on the close-up of just the thrill of the close-up that's more intimate than than you could almost ever have even with a lover (laughs) yes that's right the landscape of the of the face you i think of there was a film about cinephiles a documentary and i remember one of these guys who sees two or three films a day Mm -hmm. was saying he could only fall in love with a 
black and white woman, a woman in black and white now. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I get I it. it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my, my libido or whatever, my erotic self was totally formed on black and white film. It's a very mm. crippling thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it, uh, but, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, please. We'd rather hear from you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, right you're on. the experts. You're the experts, please. Well, I was just going to, for the, you know, for the average listener, people, your hypothesis might be a little confusing when applied directly to cinema in a way regarding content, because mm -hmm. I think most people think of films, at least since the 60s, since the sexual revolution, since um, the production code dissolved in the United States, at least, as um People think of the movies as, you know, featuring lots of sex. And and mm -hmm. obviously pornography had a very big impact in cinema of the 70s. It continues to have a big in impact just on everyone's, you know, computer screen throughout the world. Um, mm -hmm. So in a way, there's more sex on screen than ever, or at least we're used to thinking of it that way. A and yet, um, I mean, Eileen and I, when we, you know, saw your book, I, we uh, we agree with you, even as as this um, this um, state of having reached peak libido extends to movies because we feel that it, we actually do feel that your you know your thesis is manifest uh, in, in what we see on screen um, as in we actually don't think yeah there the movies are very there's a lot of sex on screen but there mm. is something of the erotic that's been leashed yes, right. um and i you know i don't want to be reactionary and say that's just because everyone's naked all the time although i do mostly kind of think that um <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah cards on the table um I, w I was wondering if you could speak to that like how does this yeah. you know peak libido relate to sort of post-sexual revolution um you know uncensored you know screen set free I, I, we know we know that the visual regimes are not free as you just said uh, the you know mm. things like the male gaze are inscribed in film language but uh you know on a very obvious level there's just more sex on screen so how does that yeah what do you say to that no that's a great great question and but i do wonder if it's changed in the last maybe five years but I'll, we'll get to that mm -hmm. but the i did write in my notes somewhere preparing for this that the camera seems to have become bored of voyeurism itself and the gaze is maybe glazing over for those reasons you mentioned there's probably a, an a fatigue with just sort of naked bodies the mechanics of sex which as yes. you say is not not necessarily where eros comes from mm -hmm. um i mean there's still oil everywhere for the moment but that doesn't mean we haven't peaked in a in a certain way mm -hmm. um I know, Eileen, you're a Simpsons fan. You probably remember the Mr. Burns line. Do you remember he says, I took in a movie, an appalling little piece of filth. Its leading lady was a blonde harlot who spent half the film strolling around naked as a jaybird. Oh, just give the great unwashed a pair of oversized breasts and a happy ending and they'll oink for more every time. Oh, my God. That's great. Even if you memorized the whole speech. No, no, no. I've, I've, I've written it out because it was so good. But... Call me old-fashioned, but movies were sexier when the actress kept their clothes on. Vilma, <laughs> and this reference is amazing, Vilma Banky could do more for me with one raised eyebrow than an entire, and then he's cut off by, oh, by Smithers, I think. But yeah, so, I mean, there you have it, right? It's like exactly. we find the films of the 20s and 30s probably much more erotic because of the frisson, because of the kind of play between repression and, and release. and um, you know, it's uh, 
this is an unwieldy phrase, but Marcuse's idea of repressive desublimation is 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 kind of important, I think, because it 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 speaks to the way the sexual revolution, um, yeah, encouraged um, the libido to break its shackles. But um, of course, that was monetized and you know controlled and channeled very quickly. You know, Playboy being one of the most obvious examples. Um, so there, yeah, the, the, I think that's part of what's happening is a, in a, just a general cultural exhaustion and, and over access to, to sex, mm-hmm. which just by the logic of, you know, scarcity and things like that means it's, it's harder, but also, yeah, this, there's this, It, to go back to Bernard Stiegler, it, 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 it encourages drive. We're encouraged to have sort of these very quick, narrow cycles of, of tension and release mm-hmm. and no investment, you know, no sense of play, no seduction. Um, you know, Baudrillard, I, I, I'm a fan, and he, he sort of places seduction as the opposite of love, not, not a moment towards love, but seduction as a kind of challenge or duel or game that is much more ludic and open and generous and not so kind of white knuckled and, um, you know, jealous and all those problems we associate with love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a neat theoretical distinction, obviously living these things is more difficult, but very few films or TV shows are interested in seduction per se. It's it's sort of yeah, it's it's explicit. It's obscene in the sense of technically obscene, and in, in that it's showing everything, and that doesn't leave much of the secret. It doesn't leave much traction for the libido to. <laughs> it's very Teflon. Yes, yes. Well, and that does feed into to your idea, Dolores of. The necessity of extended time and a kind of languorous leisure to have a certain type of erotic um, cinema and that we tend not to have. In fact, I was just talking to someone, trying to remember what it was about, who was talking about a, a show, maybe it was Bridgerton, which I still haven't watched, oh, Lord. <laughs> um, oh, Lord. where it seemed time. Like every, it was sort of like the old action films where it became time starting in the 80s, where it was every X number of minutes or pages, if you're looking at the script, you had to have a certain right. size action scene and something similar seems to be happening where every whatever 15 20 minutes you have to have a sex scene and right. it's now clocked in um which already <laughs> makes you feel tense <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like the, the trains will run on time yes. it's coming just around the corner now oh, the God. next yeah. but um yeah the, well, one why i made this asterisk about maybe the past five years or so mm-hmm. is that I do feel there might be a kind of new prudishness as well, given the a sort of reaction against the ubiquity of, uh, well, the pornographic nature of HBO and co. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I, you know, I'm so in lockdown and everything. I really kind of feel like I've run out of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back to true blood because ah. I don't know, there's something campy that I enjoyed the first time round, sort of smart campy that <laughs> people don't do much anymore. And it's it was a bit of a culture shock because it was just so over the top. Um, just everyone's rutting everyone in that in that show, <laughs> blood everywhere, and and it just felt like the zeitgeist had changed. You know, it's mm-hmm. like this doesn't work anymore. I don't think my students 
would be into this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much, you know, the whole, it feels like it's more mumblecore and sort of performance of, yeah, awkwardness and elliptical relationships. And um, I don't know, it's much more, I, yeah, I, this is something I'd like to hear your thoughts about because uh, I watched last night a film, a brand new film called Save Yourself. I don't know if you've heard of no, that one. No, no, no. It's What's that about? brand new, but it's about two Brooklyn, a Brooklyn couple, very hipster, um, and they go upstate um, on holiday and turn off their phones because they want to reconnect. And um, in the meantime, there's an alien apocalypse that they're not aware of. Um, it's low budget, but it's and, and it's not. You know, I have to say, I didn't love it. Um, but yeah, it's it it seemed much closer to the zeitgeist than, than True Blood in terms of it's about a couple who they didn't seem to have any sex. So they were talking about maybe we should have children. But it was more, it's, yeah, maybe back to Dolores's point that they seem so anxious about work or being fired. And, you know, it just seemed very tense <laughs> and like a, a symptom of not having the luxury that previous generations maybe had for even daydreaming or, um, you know, fantasy. Uh, let alone realizing these. No, that's, I mean, that's it. You know, and I, I, I love this point in your book that libido is a synonym for attention mm. or kind of, you know, the ability and space to pay attention, uh, direct one's attention. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe before we get more into that, um, mm. I, it, what, what you say, what you've noticed about films of the last five years or so resonates with me. Um, I, the, the, to my touchstone is HBO's Euphoria, the mm. you know the Gen Z um, high school um, HBO show. It's it's great. I really enjoyed it with Zendaya and I forget the other actor. Um, mm. But it's a you know it's a love story. It plays out over a whole season, and I don't think there's an one. Uh, uh, there are explicit sex scenes, but they are only like transactional grinder um, type sex. So right. you know app hookup sex where people have you know come to a hotel room and do what they have to do but the primary love story between the main characters um even though it is sexual sort of it's kind of in this um netherland between friendship and and sexual attraction um Mm. and the characters never really get together in that way like explicitly and Mm. and it is like you said this performance of awkwardness um you know just kind of uh, one of the girls is a recovering addict and she's out of touch with herself and that's Mm. and and actually now that you mention it um when she's in a really depressive phase she just watches hours and hours of reality tv on her laptop in bed Mm. (laughs) and and she doesn't this is all coming together dominic um she She, she won't get up to urinate. Uh, so, like, talk about blockages. Like, oh, and, right. and, and she, she even gets yeah. a, you know, she gets a urinary tra- or a kidney infection, like a serious one, and ends up in the oh, hospital wow. because of this depression. So, um, yeah, I think I think you're, I think you're onto something. <laughs> yeah, I um, I mean, we're in such a. I, I mean, I'm, I feel like we're in such a transitional moment when it turned when it comes to navigating you know these these areas there's such huge tectonic changes happening that i think i just can't you know i'm not trained myself to really see them yet and i know that euphoria is something i need to get to but it it, it almost makes me think that younger folks are 
they're refusing what Berlant calls the love plot, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. I like her idea that there's desire mm-hmm. and we try to kind of force it into a, 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 a sort of formal dress or, a, you know, a conventional suit called love. Mm-hmm. And it's just very over overdetermined. Um, but younger folks seem maybe they're at the vanguard of disconnecting you know, eros and intimacy and, and sort of not making one person be the answer to all your needs and all your desires. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a much more, um, kind of more valences or, you know, just connections to, you know, this is someone I need for emotional support. This is someone I just need for sex, like my fuck buddy or whatever. And this is someone who I have some kind of intriguing mind affair with. Um, Maybe there's sort of more recognition of um, collective forms of intimacy or poly forms of intimacy that, you know, film and TV has been slow to catch up with. Perhaps that that sounds optimistic or optimistic. Yeah, it's not not my natural mode. So I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm trying to speak struggling. to my students a little bit here, but I'm happy to flip to the other side if you like. Because well, um, I there's also yeah there there are more negative negative ways to look at it, of course. But do tell us what your students would say. Do you have you taught <laughs> you know a course uh, um, around this book or you know I, I imagine these topics come up with them. How do you think they would respond if if they heard what you how you just characterized their generation? Would that sound good to them? Yeah, I think so because I mean it gives them the benefit of the doubt, right? As not just yeah. being victims or symptoms, but as in trying to renegotiate the erotic contract in mm-hmm. in certain ways. So there's certainly more avenues for expression or identity um i mean that can have the negative side of you know just confusion and mm-hmm. all of that um that that wouldn't be my my take it's more i mean i've been teaching courses on love one way or another for quite a while now and it's changed like now at the beginning i had to like kind of convince people that there's um you know something beyond the heterosexual couple right. <laughs> um <laughs> but now you know, they're way ahead of me probably in practice, but it's, it can be a little disconcerting when it's, you know, they, they will talk about Tinder and, or these apps and stuff like we we don't have time to have a real relationship. So, you know, don't, don't blame us, you know, hate, hate, hate the game. Yeah. Um, we need to make love efficient because we need to hustle to pay the rent. <sighs> so, you know, that's kind of depressing <laughs> too. So they don't have the luxury of, lingering over aesthetic nuances of the you know mr burns has raised eyebrow or you know what he's looking for the the, the anklet that comes down the stairs <laughs> in in the femme fatale um situation so i i i worry that they again yeah they don't have the time yeah. or the attention span let's be frank <laughs> you know if the phone keeps pinging every few seconds do they have the attention span um, to really make, you know, is that the return is equal to the investment more or less, you know? So if you, if you don't invest much in a relationship, then you're not going to get too much back. So, you know, I did scribble in the margins somewhere that maybe, you know, this has moved on to things like TikTok, <laughs> you know, this is where it, ha- you know, this phrase thirst trap, which I find kind of it's great, 
fascinating idea of a thirst trap but it's it's but it it's also kind of idiocracy happening in real time before our eyes you know if it's just people kind of wiggling you know (laughs) um thrusting you know just trying to be sexy in a kind of little clip a la instagram then yeah it's kind of the the whole libidinal apparatus collapses and it's it's just drive it's just instinct it's like we might as well be kind of monkeys yeah not that i have anything against monkeys but um you know like (laughs) it's just sort of a kind of instinctual triggers at that point well i'm glad you brought us back to this like uh kind of a question of duration and attention and uh, you know i was i was so taken by your idea of libido as kind of attention um i thought about all the great erotic scenes that i could think of and they all require um kind of like you know non-productive time like i was telling eileen where i'm teaching a tennessee williams course right now the the cinema of tennessee williams and we just watched streetcar and Mm. i don't know if you remember the scene where blanche seduces the the poor boy who comes to deliver the newspaper Mm. (laughs) and and, you know her whole line you know she's she says uh don't you just love these long rainy afternoons in new orleans when an hour is isn't just an hour, but a little piece of eternity dropped in our hands and who knows what to do with it. Right. And it's like, you need a long rainy afternoon in New Orleans, you know, like that's what is required. And, you know, even the setting of the South, of course, is a place where, you know, that we think of as like backward, meaning agricultural, not, you know, uh, not participating in like mechanized time or modernity um, is, is all part of the like heat that comes from those films. Mm. Well, yeah. and is you mentioned to me that that the Tennessee Williams film world flourishes in what the 50s and 60s and then starts becoming Right before the sexual revolution. Unworkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. After it, it's, I won't say it's meaningless. I don't think it is, but you know, there, it, it, I don't know, the possibilities for its existence kind of dissipate. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but anyways, I mean, and just thinking of other sort of erotic scenes I like, you know, it, it's just people kind of, you know, just hanging out and many of them take place on long rainy afternoons. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Maybe you just have a special relationship with Maybe rain. I don't know. I don't know. You're a plurophile. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're making me think of something like Wong Kar Wai mm-hmm. um, in the mood for love. There's these, always these sort of slow languid yes. noodle runs, right? And they kind <laughs> right. of smolder and look at each other in, in tight corridors. Absolutely. Um, which is in a way the opposite of what he does in his sort of neon more modern films mm-hmm. where again characters don't connect right they can mm-hmm. they can have an erotic relationship but they're never in the same place at the same time right. yes. so it's Heart all about as- mm-hmm. yeah it's all about asymptotes mm-hmm. um so i mean one Kar could be he, he turns that kind of melancholy of missed encounters into a form of erotics of um unconsummation that's mm. not a word but like you know the, there's no climax so it's just this constant yearning <laughs> which yeah. of course is very romantic historically mm. so um but yeah i i think i guess I, this is why a lot of love stories are about upper middle class type people who have 
the time yeah. to do it. Yeah. And there's also the the phenomena of the period erotica, you know. So Jane Austen never stops getting adapted because because it can still work. It can still work, and it's still like you know, it's gentry characters, most of them, and they're sort of trapped, and women have to sit around doing needlework for <laughs> most of the time, and they're everyone's covered from um, neck to you know toes and. Um, yeah, you know, like, I, I was taught a class on Jane Austen and found out from some of my students who were who were Janeites mm. that there's sex tourism based on this. People get together and reenact in, in country estates and they oh, play the right. parts and somebody gets to be Mr. Darcy and somebody gets to be Lizzie Bennet. <laughs> and it's, you know, and there's a movie about it called Austin Land about someone who actually goes to one of these places to have the erotic encounters that you now have time for. You have all the right. time in the world. But that also shows how... I mean, if day, how important daydreaming is or fantasy is, but our fantasies are completely structured by the, you know, the, the, I guess it's Bovaryism mm -hmm. or something, isn't it? That you're, you, you sort of use the tools at hand um, and the figures at hand and the scenarios at hand, rather than trying to forge original ones, you, you kind of project yourself into um, the scenarios you've already scene uh i think dolores earlier you asked about why the 50 shades of gray series is so unsexy yes the, the, the films films yeah i mean one theory would be that well i mean for a start they're just so uncharismatic like yeah. we can start with like casting maybe what do they call it when you test for a chem like a chemistry read did they not do that <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know. But also, there's something about, um, you know, earlier in cinema history, obviously, that the, the sort of bombshells or the sex symbols were singular, or they were trying to be at least they, they you know, these were first name people that um, had a very distinctive aura and face and body. And, um, but now they seem to be leaning towards... Um, the generic, mm -hmm. right? So that that yeah. anyone, the the person next door, as it were, can can project themselves into these characters because they're just so, <laughs> you know, just so quotidian yeah. and prosaic. And it's like that might be good for the mechanics of erotic projection and onto the screen, but it's not good for like the screen giving you any heat exactly. of its own yeah. of its own accord. Um, That's such a good it's, point. That, it's not yes. Brando, and it's not yeah. I, yeah, thank you. As always, we're back to our, you know, our favorite topic. Of, uh, <laughs> there are no yeah. more stars. They took the idols and smashed them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can we end up with just these young people today? They don't know. We're, we're, we're going to be three Mr. Burnses. Also, maybe, I mean, I, you know, I think it all, Fifty Shades of Grey is also related to our hy repression hypothesis. Yes, these people have leisure because what, Christian Grey is very wealthy and the other young woman is a college student. We know they have oodles of time. Um, just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but, right. I, but, you know, there is something about like no one, there's no prohibition. Like a young, good looking, rich white man can do anything he wants with a young, good looking white woman and like no one cares. You know, it's like not crossing any boundary. I don't know, yeah. you know, so. Right. Back to Bataille, you know, that it's about you need a line in the sand and then flirt with the line and then have the transgression moment. Very much so. Um, hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, back to the very start of cinema again with the, 
you know what the butler saw when you you know you turn the handle and you can look through the mm-hmm. through the keyhole um there's a compilation called the good old naughty days of those kind of films and um you know they they they're much more playful like the the everyone's laughing and it's all just a big lock yes. <laughs> and you know pornography just becomes so serious and industrialized and kind yeah. of like um yeah it, it's not about pleasure and fun and um hmm. yeah it, 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 it there was it, it, it sort of becomes aggressive and the death the death drive and all these negative affects sort of seem to be channeled into it as a as a catharsis or a compensation for feeling um powerless or or i don't know there are all sorts of theories but it just just the joylessness of it um is really striking for for an alien anthropologist i imagine compared to the <laughs> compared to the beginning and and it's also difficult where where you lose that that cinema and it's hard to explain this to people who literally can't see it if you if you show students who try to talk about it they're just kind of like whatever but like if you look at something like a form like film noir and it's it's so much of it is so gorgeous <laughs> mm. it's it's it everything is eroticized it's not just rita hayworth and gilda though god knows she'll still blow your mind but um it's the, the 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 cigarette smoke curling up and the and the the glint yeah. off the glasses and the vase in the corner everything just looks velvety and luscious yeah. and wonderful so there's this spreading erotica of the whole screen image being infused mm. with erotic atmosphere that now you just really that's very very rare i mean you can point to david lynch mm-hmm. and i'm not sure who else you can point to who does the same kind of Thing. That's right. They're sort of ravishing yeah. textures. Um, that takes us back to libidinal ecology, right? The whole kind of yes. the environment, and that it's not just necessarily about individuals facing off like chess pieces, but mm-hmm. it's about the tone of a place and a time. And like, yes, the rain. One hour in the rain. <laughs> it's 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 an openness to. Um, Attention, attention on all five sensors. I guess that's part of it too. Um, and cinema can't do that technically, but it can evoke it, as you say. Like you can't literally smell the cigarette, mm-hmm. but the way they they shot it um, makes you feel like you can. So um, it is kind of a bit of a lost art, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the cinematographers who seem to be able, or and or directors, and or you know, it's such a how do you pinpoint where yeah the set the, the, from, the set direction from everywhere. Yeah. yeah when it works all together it's yeah. it's quite something um but in the 20s and 30s uh i don't know if you've seen flying down to rio recently yes. but recently. that's that's yeah. a lot more racy than i remember like mm-hmm. there's sort of almost it's pretty much nudity um throughout right. <laughs> like i mean through not just nudity nudity but like very um very little uh, underwear on yeah the very little i mean it's definitely pre <laughs> yeah, pre-code and i'd pre-code. forgotten that yeah. um and and there's you know criterion's been having a may west um mm-hmm. collection recently and i was looking back at some of those and i was struck by what you two were saying in a recent episode about the 70s because people tend to see that as a golden age of cinema but eileen obviously you think was very murky and (laughs) and the women were given very short shrift which when i thought you know i'm ashamed to say i never dwelt too much on that idea um but obviously the 20s and 30s when you have 
Mae West literally embodying kind of female desire in such a um, kind of <laughs> joyous and shameless way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Dietrich and Garbo, I just watched the, which is the one where she comes out of the gorilla suit. Oh, uh, Blonde Venus, yeah. Blonde Venus, yeah. I mean, bizarre. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's it's certainly something. <laughs> it certainly is something. Hot voodoo, hot voodoo. Hot voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> An amazing song. Yeah, I guess we could call that problematic. But it's, um, <laughs> but yeah, there was um, certainly women in the 20s and 30s, women actresses, um, uh, with the with the with the stars of the show but also had agency it wasn't just to look at they seem to be have have their own thoughts and secrets and, and stuff like that a lot of the time mm-hmm. but then you have busby berkeley of course in his big girl machines yeah you do have that's the, count, the, count, the counter <laughs> absolutely but it, it yeah. just seems like you you just had great female stars in a way that just completely almost disappears at, at the time when you know it's supposed to be feminism and autonomy, it's not like there isn't anything. You know, there's mm-hmm. movies yeah. like Julia, and you know it's about a female friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Fonda and Vanessa Redgrave and all that, but even that doesn't seem like it's it's giving them tremendous power, <laughs> especially yeah. not when you look at Mae West or or something like that or Dietrich. The truth. I mean, I I this is you know bit of a cliche but for me lubish really might be the high watermark mm. for a certain kind of sexual sophistication mm-hmm. that isn't you know that's about closer to what Baudrillo was describing seduction mm-hmm. it was a kind of a meeting of minds the parrying the sort of fencing games people mm-hmm. would play and um you know design for a living is just perfection mm-hmm. to me trouble in paradise, trouble in paradise. yeah um these are, I don't think, I mean, it's hard to find films that are that light in, yeah. in terms of entertaining, but still, so, I mean, this does blow my students' minds. They're like, how can this be about three people being in love? And, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no moral yeah. kind of, you know, nobody has to die and nobody, <laughs> right. has, to be, nobody has to be punished. And, and they how just can it actually be... be about the delights? Imagine exactly, like happiness. Now. You can't even say that word, the delights yeah. of sexuality. And you're just like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. <laughs> right. So just the fact that there's so few models for that is, um, I mean, we're being very U.S. centric, I suppose. We are, just, yeah. Um, European films are famously more. <laughs> more sophisticated but um i don't know it's it's uh yeah i i was thinking about french films as i you know as we had our conversation and they may be yeah. more sophisticated but they're not more joyful especially yeah, not I was say, I'm, I'm racking my brains here but yeah that's a good point i'm like thinking of all that you know the new french extremity and all this uh, is like yeah, not a yeah. This is that speaks to me of the end times. Like I feel like it is very much um, in line with your thesis. Like it. Oh yeah, the Gaspar Noé kind of stuff and the piano teacher and all that. Exactly, and this, you know, all the work of like Catherine Boyard. You know, it's all this. It's it's all death drive. It's all (laughs) there's there's you know nothing kind of connecting, and it it's it doesn't even allow like a melodramatic catharsis. It's kind of just um, I don't know, like this inhibited, awful, like dry heave <laughs> <what> I, 
bit of a vomit, you know? It's That's like, well put. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not even a wet heave. It's just dry. <laughs> it's just dry. No. So I think, I think, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think European film can save us. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, but not that French film is all of European film. And I mean, there are some delightful, yeah. like, you know, sex comedies and stuff coming out of mm. all kinds of places, but not, not many that I've seen that I would say are you know, great and everyone should pay attention. Yeah. You know, there's one I just stumbled on yesterday. I haven't seen it yet, but the, the description seems again on topic. This is one called preparations to be together for an unknown period of time. Have you heard of this? Oh one? yes, I've, I've heard, heard of it. it. I haven't. I haven't. Seen I mean, it's a great it. title, and it, mm-hmm. but the, the the description is: after twenty years in the U.S., Marta, a Hungarian neurosurgeon, returns to Budapest for a romantic rendezvous with a fellow doctor she met at a conference. When the love of her life is nowhere to be seen, she tracks him down only to have the bewildered man claim the two have never met. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely more about the, you know, there is no sexual relationship Lacanian maxim yes, these yes, days no. rather than a, an attempt to kind of m- make lemonade out of these, out of these lemons. <laughs> And and there's the miserable couples, right, genre as well, marriage story and Manchester at Sea and Blue Valentine and just these, these waspy, Waspy like, yes, well, (laughs) (laughs) you know that I was thinking, okay, so Eileen and I, when we first, we threw, we have a long anti-Valentine's Day tradition and (laughs) it began in part, we, we once threw this party for the DSA, but it kind of came out of like, we're just talking about, you know, like what are anti-Valentine's Day things to do? And one of the films that came up was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, (laughs) You always want to have in your anti-Valentine's Day party. But (laughs) I was thinking of that in terms of your book. And I thought, you know, even Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is very, I would not say it's an expression of, you know, having hit peak libido. To me, it still is actually like kind of about love and (laughs) like actually is pretty sexy. And even Mm. though it is one of these bad marriage films, there is something, maybe it's just the Burtons, but I know, I think, I think it is in, you know, in Albie's dialogue, there's like genuine love and, and definitely play between these mm. two. Um, and it's, it's interesting because contrasting that with something like Marriage Story, which is like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, light, and, an, and the light annoying version, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's, there's something there, like, the... Yeah, actually, Aegon is maybe giving it too much credit. Like, yeah, maybe I'm giving it too much credit. It, it, it's God. angst without the Aegon. Yeah, yeah, that's better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, there's also a nostalgia for the smoldering, right, happening right now. Um, uh-huh. The the dig, um, oh, which is brand new, mm-hmm. um, didn't like it, but it, mm. it's part of this thing, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, right, right. Ammonite. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Ammonite. World, I saw that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, disobedience. Um, there's all these kind of smoldering. A lot of them are sapphic, but like mm-hmm. um, two of, there's a lot of, Period pieces, yeah, set earlier as if we need that kind of Victorian repression. Mm-hmm. You know, Very Foucault much so. bracket Very off much. the Foucault, but like <laughs> it's it's we want smoldering looks and and high colors and um you know that kind of stuff because yeah. then then yeah that for the very reasons we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, so Damon Young, who writes a lot about sex on screen, he's got a book, Making Sex Public, that came out, I think, two years ago. Um, yeah. He was he was writing about Short Bus, which came out in 2006. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Short Bus is a comedy about, I don't know, like a just like a, a person trying to have a several people trying to um, I think it really sort of circulates around having a female orgasm. And this one guy is trying to give himself a blowjob throughout the whole film. And then he like figures it out um, <laughs> among other things. Um, yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. And, but, Hard you to know, get that image out of your head. Right. Yeah, they show it at the, or they show yeah, it practicing. Yeah. Um, but you know, Damon's saying this is this film, among others, marks the shift, uh, um, kind of that started in the se- with the sexual revolution in the in the late '60s, in particular, at least on film. And he said, you know, the structuring opposition is no longer one of repression versus liberation, but rather a of blockage versus free mm. circulation. Mm. And this seems to go along with your thesis as well. Yeah, not being trapped in these. I mean. It's ironic that we we're becoming less and less human in a sense of of being trapped in our with our fetishes and our kinks and our triggers, and that's sort of all we need to get off is a very quick kind of release. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, but it's a release that just leads back to more blockage. So there is there's no sense of a journey or momentum or progress or evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of this. So it is about, there's something claustrophobic about the libido these days in general that, you know, I'm a big fan of Fourier, as you saw in the book. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's one of the first people to think, how can we rearrange society to allow everyone to feel, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get beyond um, isolation and uh, claustrophobia? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, these are these are big hard questions, but it's like we've it's like we've deliberately set up a sort of cultural media environment that isolates and only satisfies the physiological or the psychic at the most basic level, mm-hmm. um, just so we keep you know so we keep working without um, yeah you know we we sort of submitted to. <laughs> that arrangement rather than pushing back and saying no I, you know we need to cultivate attention cultivate spaces and places and relationships where to allow things to to grow um is it, it what is the term passionate attraction is going to be the new basis for ordering desire? yes yeah. for Fourier, yeah. yeah wouldn't that be nice but yes, no it's... it sounds like it's mouth-watering oh my god my god <laughs> Just even that, even that phrase, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a very early socialist before for Marx, and you know, Engels was more fun than Marx, I think, and he he liked Fourier a lot because he was he liked having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of the left, as you've said earlier in these podcasts, have kind of they they might be against exploitation and and you know, the way things are, the material conditions of the world. But there's there's not much talk about, um, you know, how to help people flourish and, and get the libido back on track because, oh, going back to like the 60s, um, films like uh, Mysteries of the or- Organism, the sort of how, how to film Wilhelm Reich's ideas, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was a, there was a moment there where they really revolution 
um, would have to be connected to desire um, very explicitly. So it was Freud meets Marx. And, um, you know, Freud has lots of problems, and he, but he has been kicked to the curb, whereas it's sort of just Marx now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, as we keep pointing out, that leaves pleasure and other other questions behind, as if we just solve the question of labor and then suddenly everything will be okay. There were very interesting, complex films in the 60s trying to say that's, you know, you can't just concentrate on on one side. Of course. Mm-hmm. It, may, I, may I read a section from your, your epilogue? Will that embarrass you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why would uh, it? Probably a little bit, though. <laughs> Sure. Go ahead. I'm going to do it. Any- okay. Um, because this is, this is kind of a lovely formulation of what you just said. This is on page 113 and it's in your epilogue. And in the epilogue, you're, you're laying out um, your plan for what you call seeking carnal knowledge, which is, you th- <laughs> which is your, uh, your sort of um, what you advocate, uh, you know, what, what, what we should do in the face of this uh, of, of living through peak libido. So you say we must not retreat into defensive postures and emotional austerities. Old, powerful white men do not care about your well-meaning composting drives, your progressive book clubs, your neo-Calvinist sublimations, or your libidinal austerity measures. They're not threatened by your politically nuanced sanctimony for the simple reason that craven, heedless hedonism will always triumph against it. Earlier, you're you're talking of Trump. Um, So long as these are the bleak alternatives on offer. Instead, we should fight corrupt pleasures with compassionate bliss bombs. (laughs) Like hell yes, <laughs> that's what we've been saying. <laughs> yeah, erotic Molotov cocktails. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, it's easy for me to say. Uh, I mean, that's know, rhetoric, I, right? But like, yeah, how do we how do we, how do, do, we do this? But like, like I think Lubish is what I mean. We can't just remake Lubish, obviously, but there must be a, a, a sort of a contemporary equivalent. I mean, there are films that. Uh, you know, Moonlight struck a chord with a lot of people. Yes. I mean, it, it is good that there's, I mean, I do think that there's, it's starting. <laughs> um, I remember, did, didn't you say you were really moved by the octopus teacher, Dolores? Yeah, like, we both oh, were, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a love story, it's right? It's a beautiful love story. It's I probably one it of the best we've had for a long time, but that's because it's, I mean, he's he's a bit of a, you know, bit of a wet blanket, but the octopus is great. Yes, she has all the charisma. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah, exactly. She's, um, and I think of. Sorry, go ahead. Please. Well, no, I wanted to. Eileen had this great point about that guy has to be such a drip, so that like the force of the purity of their love, like you know, yes. has a blank canvas on. Like, say, <laughs> say your thing. <laughs> you had a great well, point. You, just, you said it better than me. That's exactly right. That's the only way to like redeem this life that seems so constrained and wet blankety, and then, and then mm. he finds real love, and it's transcendent um, love, <laughs> and it's just the most ecstatic film. I've I love the film. It's the only film I've seen in ages where I, it was hyped like crazy before I saw it, and it still was still better. Good, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I was. I thought it was great, and yeah. I'm also. I also like the Love Witch. Have you seen that? Oh, I haven't no. seen it. Uh-uh. Uh, What's that about? It's it's a um, sh- the director is a woman who just loves things like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that kind of world, mm-hmm. and um, she's 
it's a pastiche, but it's really, really well done. They're like just the colors are amazing and it just looks I mean it's mm. it's nostalgic and it wallows in that, but it's very well it was very pleasurable to watch if you're into that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But we haven't talked about the least sexy oh, directors right. yet, have we? So we so this <laughs> I mean, really, the the whole one of the the thing that provoked this episode is a hilarious Facebook post by Dominic. I just kind of ask it. You asked your friends, you know, who which directors have like the unsexiest ooves of all time, um, and and what kind of answers did you get? Well, I mean, Spielberg was the first one that came to my mind, and he certainly was. People, other people posted that one, but it was it tended to be just those guys from the eighties yeah. that that kind of reactionary blockbuster world against the 70s um the ron, ron howard ron howard ivan reitman um chris columbus mm-hmm. uh <laughs> joel schumacher i mean yes. you know mm-hmm. whoever did top gun i don't know yeah. oh, um, uh, tony scott okay okay there you go tony scott directed the hunger oh my god so we can't his I okay. can't do that. he's not allowed to go in there. <laughs> you're right the hunger is just I was like, wondering about Tim Burton, actually. Like, he's, he oh, wants to be call. sexy, but he's not, right? Well, he I kind think... of had moments early, <laughs> early on, but they're all very early. Like, there are moments in Ed Wood that are very... very I like Ed Wood, yeah. I love Ed that's Wood. True. That's my favorite of his poems. Where a, vamp- a vampira comes around the corner of a, of a sun-baked suburban California street. I'm like, my God, that would have redeemed my whole childhood. I could have just seen that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess those most of the ones we mentioned weren't even trying to be sexy, except for like, as you say, according to the formula, where like, mm-hmm. okay, you have to have a babe at thirty mm-hmm. minutes, um, just for the audience, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. for the popcorn munchers. But um, and it, I, it, yeah. Oh no, please, no. Sorry, I didn't mean. Go for it. <laughs> uh, Kevin Kevin Smith is definitely one for me. Oh, um, yeah. he's just a terrible, oh, terrible, so awful. Uh, yeah. So that. <laughs> Makes you never want to have sex again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or see movies but, if they but have the 90s, to be by him. I mean, the 90s, it's, it's an interesting to revisit because in some ways it was, trend, like, they, they were trying to be sexy in, mm-hmm. in postmodern ways. You had, like, um, you know, Bound and uh, oh, yeah. The, La- the Lost Seduction was a nice twist on the thriller mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it, it was really, I just don't know what to do with the 90s because they're sort of coming back aesthetically. I, right. Again, I see it in my students. And I don't know what, nar- what the, the, the sort of takeaway was from gender politics where obviously there's a lot of reckoning going on with actresses of the time just how you know terrible it was to work then and and maybe some of the mo- movies reflected that you know that was coyote ugly and wild things and stealing uh, beauty and all that Harvey kind of Weinstein is running everything yeah, yeah so yeah. that was sort of part of the zeitgeist yeah. was the kind of sweaty sweaty sleazy stuff mm-hmm. um what do we think yeah. these directors have in common i mean is it just the fact that they're all kind of like overgrown adolescent boys or what do you think Probably. is the yeah <laughs> yeah that's i mean it might be as simple as that okay that it's like they i mean yeah there's just no understanding of <laughs> um 
Oh boy, what can you say? Yeah, Spielberg's fixations, if you just take an example, don't ever seem to lend themselves to what would go on between a couple. <laughs> actually. Yeah, like, and he's most comfortable crazy. with Jaws. I, I still think it's his best film, and it's, it's mm. all men. <laughs> right. Men and a giant shark. And That's it. Blood. I guess it's the homosocial <laughs> thing. Of that, like, it's like yeah. the women just don't belong. Yeah. You know? they're, they're just or as props they, or yeah, exactly. as catalysts for the plot, but it's, it's all about the homosocial safe world. Mm-hmm. and um, Any vivid Which could be interesting if it was, yeah. you know, a little bit queered up or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's not. It's all like, I guess it's a, that kind of American disavowal of it all. Um, yeah, well, so it's all about inability yeah. to pay attention. Like even I just watched Hillbilly <laughs> Elegy, which is Ron Howard, which he's been just justly attacked from all sides about, and you just can't get over it. You're like, did you at least visit the place? You supposedly did. You seem to have no feeling, right, whatsoever for the world you're representing. So if you have no feeling for it, you seem to be unable to pay. It. No detail comes alive mm-hmm. of the neighborhood they're shooting, of the family, of the way they look. It all seems cliche, all of it. Well, there's no curiosity about the other, genuinely, yeah, right? It's absolutely. it's like, how do I adapt this new thing to my worldview? Right. <laughs> Which is very black and white and very simplistic and very moralistic. Right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but we, you know, so the other, exa- the kind of counter to this, um, we we're trying to think of contemporary directors who were mm-hmm. sexy. And Eileen, you mentioned David Lynch, who, who is not, you know, he, this is not a, even though Mulholland Drive does feature a queer relationship, mm-hmm. this is not a director, I would say, with necessarily a queer sensibility. So mm-hmm. I think of Lynch as like, oh my God, this is the last hetero, like the last depiction of heterosexuality that's sexy. <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't know if you agree, Dominic. But um, well, why do you why do you think that is, Eileen? Oh, well, for me, I mean, it. He has exactly the opposite, and he can be struck by some detail in the world. And this is again expanding mm. the erotic out into the world that is mm. becomes so haunting and vivid. Like you know, like a famous example would be in Twin Peaks, the the street light changing, you know, from red to green to yellow in a deserted street in a little town. Mm. And it ju- he keeps returning to it, and it gets more haunting each time. And it's just the simplest thing. Who hasn't looked at a streetlight? But it, he slows it down slightly, and it just becomes this thing that you suddenly a detail of the world comes out at you. And he's got that ability, but it's writ large. I mean, he's so magical with cast. He mm. makes erotic people who are never going to be erotic again in any other role. And he does it over and over. The whole entire cast you know, on the TV show Twin Peaks was mm. shocking. Sherilyn yeah. Fenn, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. Cheryl Lee, uh, yeah. you know, Lara Flynn Boyle, all of these people are are never, you know, Lara Flynn Boyle is never going to be hot again. <laughs> Maybe but, it's because of the, I mean, because of the enigmatic yeah. na- nature of things, the viewer is obliged to pay more attention to try and figure out what's going on. So you either submit to his kind of... Mm-hmm the secrets that he's only half showing you mm-hmm. and enjoy that or you reject it and you just say this is too weird and i can't handle it yeah and for some people but, i think yeah. they you try to equate lynch with sex and they just reel back in horror because <laughs> they're yeah. thinking of how much of a foot in horror his world has but you know he you can take it to the level of hollywood costuming he mm. seems able and this was very noticeable to me in mulholland drive he had the two women when they're doing their hunt for, you know, the true identity and all that, they're doing all that mystery hunt um, uh, aspect of the convol- very convoluted and meandering plot. 
And they're both in, I think they were both in suits that were cut so amazingly well that they were just the most erotic clothes you could wear. And that's, that's just, <laughs> that's sheer, <laughs> just brilliance with something that people don't tend to think about. The costume yeah. itself and the way it fits you in the color and, you know, someone mm-hmm. like Hitchcock who obsesses over the gray suit, you've got to have that level of obsession. I remember um, reading an interview with a tattoo artist who said she just talked about the erotics of the line. Yeah. Um, so there's something just about a curve, like literally of a line mm. that can that can work. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this, <laughs> something always seems terribly. What? Uh, um, terribly repressed and about yeah. to come out at you. But so. it also seems like something's at stake. <laughs> and something something's at stake, right? Because oh. like what? you know, we, there was a sex in the city moment. And then there were all these films, these kind of supposedly rom-coms, but they were really, I just called it Starbucks sex, like <laughs> friends with benefits where it's just mm. about, yeah, I'll have, you know, the, the grande or whatever. And it's um, <laughs> it, it, like, there's nothing seems to be at stake, even if it's just the simulation of, of such for ludic purposes. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that's just not, not erotic. If it's just like, what you see is what you get and it's just yeah transactional and mm-hmm. um no shadows no mm-hmm. uh no underworld of hidden depraved sexuality being sort of hinted at yeah and revealed and you know, I th- no- a lovely line in the baudrillard is um a, a seducer and he for him seducer is the opposite of somebody who just collects you know scalps mm-hmm. and and it's so it's not about a, like just notches on the belt um, that he calls that just uh, sexual siege craft as opposed to seduction, <laughs> which and the seducer can leave the signs hanging. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely idea, right, is to just leave a, a sign in the air mm-hmm. and let the other person figure it out. Right. And that's a lot of that is what Lynch will do mm-hmm. um, nice. just to allow people to pay attention and, 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 yeah, come up with their own readings as opposed to, you know, <laughs> giving commentary, telling you exactly what you're supposed to be thinking in every in every scene. Mm-hmm. And he's an also another one who does a lot of expansiveness with time. So at mm-hmm. the end of Twin Peaks the Return, you always return to the wonderful roadhouse and you just spend time there <laughs> while mm-hmm. the band plays some eerie yeah. yet roma- incredibly romantic song. And the atmospherics of the of the roadhouse just become the point of being there in a way that's so daring. I mean, <laughs> to do that every episode was such an yeah. incredible move to make where you're just saying, no, now we now they are gonna drive Mulholland Drive again in Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And just be night in the in the limo going up and up and up, winding, winding, winding. You know, that kind of thing again has that time expands and allows you to feel. Hmm. I, I think of um I was thinking about you know the trajectory of James Bond as 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 uh, kind of symptomatic. How you know it begins uh, just sort of sexy, and then it becomes ironically sexy mm-hmm. and tongue in cheek, and then it becomes like Daniel Craig just brooding all the time. Right. It's all very again very joyless, right? Mm-hmm. And even the Bond girls are—it's nothing to do with eros <laughs> anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kubrick, what about Kubrick? Yeah. Unse- I vote unsexy. It's, I would yeah. say, yeah, he's cold. <laughs> the coldness is the is more fascinating because the eyes wide shut, right? Seems to be maybe a moment 
Yeah. Some kind of, mo- again, it's an unhappy couple movie. Yes. But it's not sexy, but people keep referring to it, right? You know, because it has the orgy scene. Yeah, and, there's so much but it's, sex. But it's a touchstone, but it's not sexy. No. I, I agree. I, you know, we were in preparation for this episode, we were looking at Time Magazine's list of the sexiest <laughs> films. And <laughs> the, right. the, you know, the image they use with, and this was on the list, was Belle du Jour. And I was like, you know, I, like, I, <laughs> I love Boonwell and it's an amazing film. I, it's not my go-to for like erotic, like excitement. Yeah. I, I, cause it is so cold. It's coldly analytical. It's, you know, and it, it's, it's even comical, but I would yeah. not say, and it, everyone in it, you know, Catherine Deneuve is obviously very sexy to me. This mm. is not a film suffused with the haze of eroticism. <laughs> this is a film that's yeah. like, it, it's like to me, Kubrick or, or something. There's kind of like a cold. Yeah. Cerebral. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, Although we're, yeah. we're getting back to, um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like whatever floats your boat, right? Like, it, I like how we, we could just turn this into, is this sexy or is this I not? <laughs> but um, I, I was know. thinking at the start, like you could, like back to the octopus teacher, like you might find Jacques Cousteau's documentaries kind of sexy or mm-hmm. or Disney film sexy. It's, it's really, it's it's <laughs> interesting what we use sexy. as the... <laughs> right, right. So it's like it's not like there's this ob- objective um, measure for it, and I, I know we're not pretending that, but it that's why it's fun to have these conversations to think like what can different people agree, and then what would be the criteria for it? Mm-hmm. You know, how would you recognize it if you had to explain it to a robot or something? Because you know there will be algorithms trying to sort. Oh, definitely. You know, like sure this is are. the erotic <laughs> section of Netflix. It's like, according to who and, and to what, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like, this is what the bots get off on. Right, right. And it's, well, you know, you you have like a kind of, you have a lovely thing that stuck with me. Like the erotic has something to do with the creaturely, some kind of mm. connection to like, I, I just thought of it as like warm bodies, <laughs> you know, um, just mm. like an extension of that energy of the sun, like some kind of joyful more than you know comforting but also i don't know just like a warmth yeah and that's i think that could be distinguished from a more like death drive oriented sadism um Mm. not that i don't have a lot of insight into that you know i mean just what i know from the movies it's not like a drive that animates me personally Mm. no judgment if that's your thing (laughs) um so i don't really you're making me think sorry go ahead yeah no please uh, save me oh you're making me think that we're being trained to we're being trained to think of the cold and clinical as sexy um i think of a film like ex machina or something like that yes where it's um you know something about the cold silicon valley aesthetics and everything is supposed to somehow stand in for or simulate what i've been calling the enigma and but that's a lot of work for you to do as the viewer because it's it's all CGI, right? And it's not it's all yes. Even the color palettes and everything are incredibly dra- um and not like mm-hmm. homogenous. Um, but yeah, we're being told that cold equals alienation equals sexy because sometimes. But it's not that formula is getting tired, and you. This is a great segue. We wanted to ask you about like a sort of apocalyptic visions of the future on film. Mm. And if you, you know, can think of films that 
are like both show an apocalyptic vision and are erotic or does you know does apocalypse foreclose the possibility of eroticism because you you do have this line where you talk about like the work of Cronenberg and you name some other fiction writers and you talk about this like cold alienated setting um And, and, you know, certain films that try to, you know, make these kinds of atmospheres sexy, but I think you call it, and I quote, like a final animal spasm before a kind of numb and chronic exhaustion sets in. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great line. So do you, can you think of, like, on the subject of a post-apocalyptic films, um, is there space mm. for, you know, like Eros in those visions of the future? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I'm realizing I'm, I mean, I've been treading the same terrain since my dissertation, really, because my PhD was um, called After the Orgy Towards a Politics of Exhaustion. Oh, wow. So I've been exhaustion, exhausted since my 20s. And, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was that feeling of always being belated coming afterwards, mm-hmm. um, you know, after the orgy, but before the test results, as they call it. <laughs> And Good. <laughs> and I I did find that kind of stuff sexy in the 90s. Maybe this is what I was grasping at uh-huh. before, was like the 90s was pretty good at this pre-millennial tension, mm-hmm. um, kind of edgy, electric, um, you know, the techno-sexual stuff was in the air mm-hmm. in its first iteration. And, um, well, not, no, that's a terrible thing to say, remembering my history. <laughs> but, um, you know, that kind of cyber cyber sex thing for the first time around seemed a little sexy because you know it was new Mm -hmm. and um you know jg ballard i suppose was one of the patron saints in cronenberg um videodrome uh all of that stuff the the influence of blade runner was so the new flesh yes (laughs) blade runner as the as the cyber um noir Mm -hmm. And I do think that's going to come around again, um, but it'll be, as always, it's a little bit different. So, um, I mean, there's an, all these sci-fi films seem to have, they have to have Scarlett Johansson in them. Right? <laughs> yes, of course. Right. Number one. Um, Marta Figlerovitz, who, do you know um, her? She's at Yale and writes about, um, she's really great. She writes about film. and. Uh, she argues that there's been this rash of films about um, about men being anxious about being dumped by robots <laughs> <laughs> or by um, aliens. So you have Under the Skin and Her, her of course. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of all about men being rejected by smarter um, mm-hmm. machines gendered or aliens gendered as female. Oh, my gosh. So true. Which is a, mm-hmm. which is a great point. Um, but whether they're, act- I mean, Under the Skin was kind of interesting. I do think that's an interesting film. Same. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily call it, you know, erotic in a positive way. No. Um, in a warm way. In the way. That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although when you were saying that, Dolores, I was thinking how things can get too warm and like the 70s when they kind of get overripe with oh, their sexuality, so right? And then it's very fleshy and, right. and hairy and kind yeah. of. <laughs> you know, just too many oils and stuff happening. Yeah. Um, Very vivid. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we got to have a happy medium here. But I don't know. If, I mean, I'm just I'm a bit of a cheese ball, really. So like, I I like camp and I like kitsch, and so 
you know, anything that's going to be, they do, it doesn't exist. Like Barbarella was funny to me. I like, and I really enjoyed Barbarella. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I would love Flash Gordon, the original Flash Gordon. <laughs> that was kind of like Princess Aura. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, I, I can't think of any post, I mean, I mean, let's, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's like, it's all very, the apocalypse is not sexy anymore. Yeah. I, we were there wondering. must be though. Well, how? No, it- no. I mean, that's the, th- my theory was, my working theory for the dissertation was that, yeah, if we have the end of the world imminent, that will lead to, I called it libidinal eschatology. Mm-hmm. Huh. I seem to base my career around libidinal and then adding in word beginning with e (laughs) but um yeah libidinal eschatology kind of erotic endism Uh um but it's i guess it's happened so many times uh the decadence it it, it, there's no decadence now which is part of eroticism i think is is the decadent so that is so true yeah I'm, i'm not feeling it but yeah, that how could many be times just... can you go back to do another neo noir like Blade Runner about your rage to live? To borrow from John O'Hara, <laughs> yeah, well, um, that's it. Right? In the yeah. midst of apocalypse, collapse, cosmic, whatever <laughs> coming on, <laughs> coming yeah. off its axis, all of that stuff, and you keep doing this rage to live, and it can it can work up to a point, and now it just seems like I don't know. Can anyone invest in that anymore? Well, it's part of the problem. The medium. I mean, is is it that film? is exhausted <laughs> you know it's mm-hmm. gone through all its genres and scenarios and all yeah. it can do is kind of repeat and mix and match and maybe we have to look elsewhere for for eros and new in new media oh that, would that was be the, the question i was about to oh okay try to get you to wrap up the erotic green new deal and can cinema be part of <laughs> or are we or are we looking at end times cinematically <laughs> well for a start 90 minutes of attention is a big ask mm. right for the mm-hmm. for a lot of people mm-hmm. um so that that begs the question it's certainly going to be connected to the image because there's there's just this ancient connection between phantasm and the image mm-hmm. and the imagination but yeah i mean i do fear it's sort of migrating to tiktok and things like that um i always think you know idiocracy is was so prophetic and do you remember? Do you remember that? What amuses people in that film? No. Um, do, you, do you remember what their main form of entertainment is? No, I'm, I can't remember now. Yeah. What is I, it? it? They. He goes into into a theater, a cinema, and uh, they're all sitting there laughing at just a naked ass on oh, screen. Oh yes, I do remember. Farting. <laughs> farting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it's ninety minutes of just this thing farting and them laughing. And I loved his cry to them to try and do better. He he stands up and says, "Don't you want to know whose butt this is <laughs> and why it's farting?" Like that's about it. I think that's the best we can ask for at this point. Is like. <laughs> Can't we ask whose butt it is and why it's farting? Oh We're not going to get a better ending than that. <laughs> That's the line. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Dominic, Dominic Petman. <laughs> it's just beautiful. It has been a pleasure. It has. Really, thank you. Really. I really, I knew I would enjoy this and I really did. So thank you, folks. Marvelous.
<laughs> and of course, we thank you all for listening and for joining us for Film Sucks Fabulous February, especially, of course, to our invaluable subscribers. If you like what you heard here, please consider signing up with Pat- Patreon for all the Film Sucks content and, instead of just the half that you can get as part of the beloved public. Um, join us next week for our regularly scheduled podcast episode that'll be coming out on Tuesday, February 23rd. Um, Dolores is going to be taking a little break, but Eileen will be me. I will be <laughs> talking with Emily Robbins, um, who is an Anglophile and a literature enthusiast, and she's morbidly fascinated by the romance genre. We're going to take on the hit Netflix series Bridgerton. God help us all. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so stay safe till next time, and may you begin desiring otherwise. Yes, th- Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you, Dominic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.